0: in your life. If he's not in the tomb, then where is he in general? And specifically, where is he for you? We talked about three options. Some people keep him at arm's length. He's on the periphery. He's on the edge of their life. A lot of times if you've got him on the edge, it's because you're nervous. You're not sure how he's going to respond if you let him come close. Is he going to bring a wrecking ball and destroy everything that you've built? Is he going to, is he upset with you because of something you've done or said that was kind of the Peter syndrome that we talked about last week, he was ashamed of what he'd done and so kept Jesus at arm's length. Is that you? Or for some folks, it's just life. Life kind of gets in the way, and you look up one day and you realize you're in a boat, he's 100 yards away on the shore. And that's kind of where you found yourself. And if that's you, the encouragement was you've got to take a step. Just like Peter, you jump in the boat and you swim to the shore. That's what we have to do. We have to make an intentional and conscious step, intentional and conscious step to, to bring Jesus closer or for us to move closer to him and not keep him on the edge. And we said from there, there's kind of two different postures. One is this face-to-face. We talked about that in terms of kind of a personal, devotional relationship with the Lord and how important that was. That's the symbol in John 21, This, this uh, the picture of, of Jesus inviting Peter to come eat with him, symbol of fellowship and acceptance and all of those things, an invitation to relationship, and we need that. We need that for sure. And then the, the, the last was side-by-side where we're working with Jesus, we're partners with him, we're laboring with him. In kingdom work. And we said a lot of us tend to be bent one way or the other. Some of us are bent more to this kind of devotional thing, and we can, you know, we know Bible verses and we don't need the words to the songs because we've got them all memorized, and we spend tons of time with the Lord personally, and that's kind of our thing, but we're not necessarily doing a whole lot with it. Nobody around us is really being influenced. And then there are others of us who jump straight over kind of this face to face thing, and we're task oriented people, and we just say there's work to be done, so let's go do it, and that other stuff is for girls and for sissies. I'm just I'm here to work. And both of those are equally flawed. And what we want to maintain is the tension, the dynamic between both. You need this face-to-face relationship. That's where you receive kind of what Bo was saying earlier. That's where you hear from the Lord that you're loved, that you're approved, that you're accepted because of who you are not because of what you do. If you don't get that, you're constantly going to be on a treadmill trying to prove yourself. Paul says don't do anything out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. It's impossible to follow that command if you don't first know who you are in Jesus, because everything you do is going to be out of selfish ambition and vain conceit. You're going to be trying to bring identity or acceptance or worth to yourself, but then the other is just as bad. You know that you've got this great individual personal relationship with Jesus, but if you're not doing anything with it, then you're wasting your talents that the Lord has given you. People around you are dying and you're not doing anything to help. So that was last week and I was thinking about that and wondering, uh, actually I wasn't wondering, I'm, I'm knowing that uh, all of us at some point, and I would say at multiple points in our life, if you've never experienced this, you will. And if you have experienced it, you're going to experience it again. Where the When the question is asked, where is Jesus in my life? The answer is, I don't know. I can't find him. He's hidden from me. I'm talking specifically to people who have a relationship with the Lord. If you don't have a relationship with the Lord, you've never had that, well, that's a different set of problems, a different set of issues. The reason he's hidden is because you've never introduced yourself. But for those of you who have, you've had a relationship with God, you've known him, maybe you've had wonderful experiences with him, but when the question comes, where is Jesus in my life, your honest answer is, I have no idea. I can't see him right now. That's who I want to talk to this morning. This is Luke 24, starting in verse 13. Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked to discuss these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them. But they were kept from recognizing him. He said, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, Are you only a visitor to Jerusalem? Don't you know the things that have happened there in these days? What things? About Jesus of Nazareth, he was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But We had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what's more, it's the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. And some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said. But him they did not see. Jesus said to them, How foolish you are and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus acted as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it's nearly evening, the day's almost over. So he went in to stay with them. he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened, they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us, while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us. We kind of walk through this story uh, kind of a chunk at a time. Let me see if I can make a few connection points for where we are. First, I, I mentioned this earlier, just to set it up, verses 13 through 15. These two guys, Cleopas and whatever his friend's name were, they were followers of Jesus. They weren't in the 12 disciples, but they were they were connected to those guys. You notice they talk about our women going to the tomb and our companions who, who, who went to the tomb as well. So, they're connected. Luke talks about Jesus sending out 70-ish people um, for ministry, two by two. And could very well be that these were two of those guys. These were folks, that they knew who Jesus was, they had a relationship with him, they were not part of the inner circle, but they were part of that group of disciples that had followed him for some period of time. These are insiders, and they're confused, they're frustrated, they're upset, the Bible says they're downcast, they're arguing with each other, That word, those words don't necessarily come through, through what we're reading, they're debating and arguing about what happened, so What's going on is they have all these expectations for the Messiah. This is what he's going to do. They put their hope and their faith in Jesus. Then he's crucified on Good Friday. And this is, this is Easter Sunday. And they're saying, what, what happened? The Messiah is not supposed to die. And so they're arguing and debating about what is going on, most likely about this empty tomb and what the women saw and what Peter and John saw when they ran to the empty tomb. And they're arguing and debating this. And they're, very, they're upset. They're kind of Their world has been shattered. Difficult for us maybe to see that this would be a world-shattering event, but for them it was. They would put all their hope, all their faith, for them, their family, and their country, was in the Messiah, and they thought they had met him. They thought they'd followed him around for a year or two years or three years, however long they'd been with him. And now all of that has been blown to pieces by the crucifixion. So you have that going on. Then you have Jesus coming to meet with them, but they don't recognize him. The Bible says they were kept from recognizing him, which is an interesting Verse, they were kept from recognizing him. So to me, the question is, well, who is keeping them from recognizing it? What's going on there? They're confused. They're upset. Jesus is the answer, but they're kept from recognizing him. So that, is it the devil? Second Corinthians 4, 4 says the God of this age, that's the devil, blinds the minds of unbelievers. So he keeps unbelievers from really seeing the, the truth of the gospel and who Jesus is. Is that what's going on here? We just said that they're believers. I don't think so. I don't think so at all. These guys are Christians. I don't think they've been blinded by the devil. So maybe it's, it's them. It's their own human sinfulness that's keeping them from recognizing Jesus. That happens sometimes. We live lives of sin, and it creates a barrier between us and the Lord. Even if we've known him at some point, when we kind of begin to rebel against him in a consistent way, there's this distance that's created. Maybe that's what's going on, and they can't see him. Jesus says, you guys are foolish. He's not calling them morons. He's saying, you don't understand. And you're slow to believe. You lack understanding and you lack faith. And maybe those two things put together have caused them to have these blinders on so that they can't see who Jesus is. Very well could be the case. I don't think so. But it could be the case. What I think is going on, I think God is the one who's keeping them from seeing Jesus. You could translate that verse more literally. Their eyes were held in order that they would not know him. Their eyes were held. Throughout, particularly in the New Testament, you see this kind of grammatical construction. This is a little technical, but just stay with me. Called the divine passive, where God is, un, he's understood to be the agent, the actor, even though he's not named. He's the one doing the acting, even though his name is not given. It's called the divine passive. You see it throughout Scripture. Just three quick examples these Beatitudes. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Comforted by who? Comforted by God. We just, we're not told that. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. By who? By God. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Who's going to show them mercy? God's going to show them mercy. Just three quick examples, all from one passage, Jesus talking, where God is implied to be the one doing the acting. And you can see this again, particularly in the New Testament, throughout the New Testament. A lot of times God's name is just not given as the one doing the action. I think that's what's happening here. Their eyes, were, they were kept from seeing him by the Lord. The Father was keeping them from seeing the Son. I think if you look at verse 31, this maybe is confirmed. This is after they recognized Jesus. It says, then their eyes were opened and they recognized him. Their eyes were closed by God at the beginning, and then their eyes were opened by him at the end. Verse 19 through 21, you see kind of the, the reason for their problem, the reason they're in the situation that they're in. They had followed Jesus and they had hopes for him. We've said this multiple times. Unmet expectations wreck relationships. They're the source of disappointment, whether that's human to human or human to divine. Unmet expectations cause disappointment, which wrecks relationships, and that's what's going on here. He was a prophet. He was powerful in word and deed. And then what does it say? We had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. We had hopes for him that he didn't meet. We had expectations for him that he didn't live up to, and so now we're wrecked. Everything that we had believed, we had put our life into his hands for however many months or years. We would followed after him, put everything else on hold. All that was destroyed on Good Friday. Verse 22 through 24, you see this in addition. Some of our women showed up. There's this piece of information that doesn't fit for them. Dead people stay dead, but they've got a tomb that's empty. And so there's this piece of data that they don't know what to do with. That's what I think they were arguing about. Did somebody steal the body? Did the, did the religious leaders steal the body? Did some of the disciples steal the body? Maybe they were remembering that Jesus said he'd be raised from the dead on the third day. And so they said, you know, we've got to make him look good, so let's go steal, steal the body. What, what's going on? How come our women and then some of our men have found an empty tomb, but it says they haven't seen Jesus yet? The women have seen an angel. The guys just saw an empty tomb. What's going on here? I think that's what they're arguing and debating. It's this piece of information that doesn't quite fit with the reality that they've constructed in their mind. They say for a messiah, he's going to come in and he's going to be a military political leader and he's going to win a battle for us. Well, Jesus died on a cross. That doesn't fit. So that whole thing is blown up. And then you get this piece of data that comes in. The tomb is empty. Well, where does that come from? How does that fit into what we're talking about? And it creates this, we're going to call it our shorthand. It's going to be this state of funkiness. That's what we're going to call it. They're upset. They're confused. They're disoriented. The technical term, if you want the technical term, I had a missions pastor. I wasn't sure this was a word until somebody came and told me after the first service that it is, in fact, a word. It's called the state of liminality. How about that? So if you've ever been on a short-term mission trip, you've experienced it. When you go to a new culture, everything that you're, that's familiar to you is taken away. The food is different. The language is different. Nobody knows your name. They don't know who you are. They don't care. The money is different. The customs are different. Every, all of the familiar handholds have been removed. And so you're in this state where everything is ambiguous. You don't know who you are. You don't know where you fit. You don't know what side of the street to walk down. You don't know if you're supposed to wave or not wave. You don't know what's a profane gesture and what's a night. All of that stuff that happens when you go to another culture. Everything's on the table. Nothing is solid. That's called a state of liminality. And in those moments, that's when God can work most strongly in our lives because we're not holding up we're not competent in those times we're not strong we're not able we're not secure we're a mess again if you've ever been in a different culture or maybe if you moved uh, you changed high schools from 9th to 10th grade or something like that you experienced that something like that happens where you're in a new situation everything from your past it doesn't matter anymore because you're in this new situation that creates this we're going to call it a state of funkiness where Nothing is solid. There's a lot of mush around the edges. And God wants to work in that mush. And that's what's going on on the road to Emmaus. These guys are upset. Emotionally, they're wrecked. Their expectations have been totally blown apart. They're just The picture to me is they're just wandering home. They had followed Jesus to Jerusalem expecting something. They got something completely different. And so they're just going home because they don't know what else to do. And maybe you can relate to them on some level. Maybe that's you today. You're on this road to Emmaus. You had hopes. You had dreams. You had expectations. You were believing. You were faithful. You were all of these things. Now the whole thing's blown up. So you you don't know what to do except go home. That's where these guys are. Then notice in verses 25 through 27, that's the pivot point. When Jesus responds, he takes this piece of information that they don't know what to do with. There's an empty tomb. He grabs onto it. He does two things. The first thing he does is he deconstructs everything that they've brought to the table. You guys are foolish. You guys are slow to believe. He's he's tearing it down. we got to get rid of this faulty structure. And then in verse 27, he builds a new one. Starting with Moses. Let me tell you everything that the Bible has to say about the Messiah. He does the same thing. Again, when you're in that funky state, he's doing something. And part of it, he has to tear down before he can build up. He's got to get the creaky stuff, the faulty stuff, the shaky stuff, the... Incorrect stuff, the inadequate stuff the impart he 's got to get all of that stuff he 's got to tear it all down, painful so he can then build up something sturdy and strong and true verses twenty eight and twenty nine you see their response they 're approaching the village where so they 're going, Jesus pretends to keep going further, and they urge him strongly urge him to stay so you 've got this picture of them of, of repentance in them they 've let go of this faulty understanding they have. They've grabbed they don't even know who this guy is. He's a stranger who's walked up to him and they're letting go of years of their understanding, years of training, years of their interpretation of the Old Testament. They've let all that go in the matter of hours because, according to the Bible, what Jesus is saying is resonating in their hearts. Don't haven't our hearts been burning within us when he told us they've recognized this truth, even though it doesn't line up with their understanding. And they're willing to let go of their understanding and grab onto the truth and they urge him To stay. You see this positive response. And then in verses 30 and 31 and 32, you get the moment of recognition. When their eyes are opened. Again, I would say by the Lord. It's not them. They didn't suddenly get really smart and figure things out. Obviously, it's not the devil. He's not into illuminating anyone. It's the Lord. He opens their eyes so that they can see who Jesus is. Jesus' work there is done, so he disappears. And those guys go home happy. Points of application a couple of things. First, I would say don't confuse proximity with relationship. Don't think that because you're familiar with the things of God, that you actually have a relationship with the Lord. You see that here in this story. You have guys who are close to Jesus, but they, they've missed it completely. They don't have any idea who he is. They don't have any idea what he came to do. They've missed it. Even though they've been close to him and are currently, they're walking side by side with him. This For some of you, maybe you've grown up we talk growing up in the church, or you've grown up around the church. Maybe you've grown up your parents were Christians, and so you kind of you know what's going on. You can sing the hymns and you can quote the creeds and you know some Bible verses and you show up every Sunday and you're a good guy and you do good works and you get and all of those things are wonderful. But you don't want to confuse just proximity to religious things or proximity to God with him actually knowing who you are. We talked about that last week. There'll be plenty of people at the end at Judgment time, we say, Jesus, what about all this stuff that we in this? I didn't even know who you were. That's the test, John 17, 3. This is eternal life, knowing you and knowing your son that you sent. And We've said before, knowing in the Bible is experiential. It's not academic. I know about Abraham Lincoln because I read a biography. I know my wife because I live with her. Two completely different ways of knowing. The second, that's what God is looking for. He wants to know you, and he wants you to know him the way you know your spouse or your kids or your parents or your friends or whoever. Relational, experiential knowledge. The only way to enter into that type of relationship is through repentance. You see it here. These two guys, they let go of their faulty understanding. They grabbed onto a true understanding. That's repentance, acknowledging where we've missed it and saying yes to what the Lord is to this new, true, and right thing. That's it. That's the only way to enter into the relationship. And you may say, I've been a Christian my whole life. And what I would say honestly is, no, you haven't. Nobody's born a Christian. We're all born separated. And there has to be a point. And you could have done it when you were five. I'm not saying that you have to hit 12 or 21. or it, You could have made the decision when you were five. You could have repented of your sin, as much sin as a five-year-old can have. And you said, you know what? I'm blowing it. And I need to put, give my life to Jesus. Perfect. Love it. Absolutely can happen. But if you can never look back at your life and say this was a point, you don't have to give me the time stamp, but there needs to be some sense in your memory of, you know what, I repented at this point. And it should have been more than once probably. Particularly if you were five when you did it the first time. As you, maybe as you grew and you became more aware of your own sinfulness, maybe you kind of re-upped with the Lord along the way. Follow me. That's a continual action. So I don't want you any. I'm not trying to. I don't want you to question if you're a Christian. I'm not asking you to question your salvation. I'm just saying. Don't confuse proximity to the things of God with a relationship with Him. And you see the way it's maintained. It's through pursuit. These guys strongly urged Jesus to stay with them. That's not in you. You didn't. You got your card punched when you were 12, and now you're living however you want to. Don't think He's going to know you. You don't want to roll the dice on that. We can go debate, once saved, always saved, some other time. My question for you is, do you know him, and does he know you? Don't lean on something you did 20 years ago. What about now? Again, you don't want to confuse proximity with relationship. The second thing, and this is really the meat of what I want to talk about. What do you do when God's the one who's pulled back? When we've pulled back. When it's our sin or our laziness or our busyness or whatever that's caused us to withdraw, we know what to do about that. We repent. And then it's it's fixed. We repent of our sin or our apathy or whatever it is. and God have mercy. And, and it's like that. And we're, we're good. But what about when God's the one who's pulled back? Again, my, my conviction here is that God's the one who's closed these guys' eyes. And there's nothing they can do about it. He closed their eyes. And they cannot open them. They have to wait for him to open their eyes for them. So what happens when that's you? When you're on the road to Emmaus, God has pulled back. How are you supposed to respond? A few things for you to kind of keep in mind. Notice Jesus does not rescue them immediately, but he does enter into their situation quickly. And there's a difference between those two things. He could have showed up right at the beginning and said, hey guys, it's me, and kind of taken it from there, and that would have pulled them out of this state of funkiness that they were in. But he didn't do that. He allowed them to remain there for the remainder of the journey, however many hours that was. But he did enter into their situation quickly. He's the one that showed up on the walk. They didn't find him. He found them. And so for you, if you find yourself there, or when you find yourself there more accurately, when you find yourself on that road, you need to realize you're you're not going to be rescued immediately. But Jesus will be near you probably just won't know it. Just like these guys didn't know it. You're probably just not going to recognize him. And it's not your fault. If you're living in heinous sin, that's a different issue completely. And honestly, if you're doing that, you don't care. You want Jesus as far away from you as as he'll go. If you're living in open rebellion, that's not who I'm talking to. I'm talking about people who want to know where he is. You just can't find him. He's hidden. When you find yourself on this road, when you find yourself in this kind of state of funkiness, you need to realize he's near you. You just can't see him. But he's close. And he's not going to rescue you immediately because he has a purpose for that time, just like he did here. The purpose for these guys was their salvation. They had a deficient view of Jesus. He's a prophet, yes, but he's also the savior of the world. He is the Messiah, but not the way you think. He's the Messiah this way, through, through dying and then rising again. They had to get this. Or they were going to miss everything about Jesus. And they were going to go home and just say, you know what? He was a great moral teacher. He was a wonder, miracle-working, great all-around guy to be with. And he's not. He's so much more than that. And so they had to stay in this state of funkiness until they got it. Jesus left them there. I would say God brought them there in order to do this. He shut their eyes in order to tear down everything that they thought about the Messiah so he could then build up a correct structure in their hearts and in their minds. He brought them to that place. Jesus, after he's baptized, the Holy Spirit leads him into the desert and then leads him out of it. That's another word for this. Some people call it a dark night of the soul or a desert or a dry season. I don't care what you call it. But you can expect to go through it, and I would say more than one time in your life. And when you're in it, you need to recognize God's the one who's brought you in He's brought you in with a purpose, and he's the one that's going to bring you out. There's nothing you can do about it. You can go suck your thumb in the corner if you want, but it's not going to get you out any faster. There's purpose that has to happen, and I would say it's two things. Two major reasons God leads us into this, and this is for everybody. There are no super Christians who get out of this. Everybody goes through it. Two major reasons that I think God takes us into these funky times. He leads us down this road to Emmaus. One is to strengthen our faith. We mentioned this last week. One of the types of soil in the parable of the soil sower is shallow. They, people who respond quickly to the gospel, yes, I get it, I'm in. And then heat comes, persecution comes, trouble comes, and we're out. The plant withers and dies. You don't want that to be you. Read through the New Testament. One of the themes that you'll see woven throughout, stand firm to the end. Jesus says that. He who stands firm to the end will be saved. Count the number of times you see the word perseverance or endure. A couple of dozen times, you'll see that concept running throughout the New Testament. It's not enough to start. You've got to finish. And the only way you're going to finish is to v- develop deep roots. And the way God causes us to develop deep roots is he steps back. Your kids never learn to walk if you carry them everywhere. At some point, you've got to put them, to, and that's what he does for us. He steps back and says, are you going to keep coming? I know you don't feel like it. Are you going to keep moving in this direction even though there's no reward for you? Will you pray even though it seems pointless? Will you worship even though you don't get any of it? You're not feeling anything. Will you obey even though there's no reward, there's no blessing to it? Will you continue to move in this direction because it's the right direction to move in even though there's no tangible benefit coming to you right now? Yes or no? That's what he's doing. Will you get deep-rooted? Will your roots go deep enough that when tough times come, you're not going to wither and die? Read Revelation. It gets bad. We don't want to be the kind that bail when it gets bad. It's better to have never started than to bail when it gets bad. And the only way for us to stand firm through the end is to develop deep roots. And so he steps away from us purposefully to see if we'll keep coming. C.S. Lewis says this. The cause of the devil is never more in danger than when a person no longer desiring but intending to do God's will looks round upon a universe from which every trace of God seems to have vanished, asks why he's been forsaken, and still obeys. That's what God is doing during these funky times. Will you still obey, even though you think, as far as you know, God has left the building? He's he's nowhere to be found. You've done your part. You're not connecting at all. Will you stick? Second thing he's doing, sometimes it's to strengthen our faith. And sometimes it's to reestablish our identity or to reground our identity. I remember I, was a, I went to the University of Georgia, and I remember my freshman year, I was walking from my apartment to class, and I had to walk past the baseball field. And there were guys trying out. I read in the red and black, that was the campus paper. There were tryouts, baseball tryouts, and there were these guys trying out for the baseball team. And just the thought flashed through my mind. Six months ago, this was in the fall, six months ago, every one of those guys was an all-star. Every one of them. Probably the MVP of their high school team, all-city, all-county, probably never had to sweat anything in their life about baseball. They were the best growing up. Six months ago, that's who they were. Now, they're fighting for the last seat on the bench. They're not going to be stars. They're sitting on the end of the bench at, at the University of Georgia. And kind of what I started thinking was, on the bus. How many of these people were homecoming queens that nobody knows about? How many valedictorians are in this class? How many who's who and senior superlatives and Mr. MHS? How many of those guys are walking around this campus right now? Tons of thousands of them are walking around this campus right now. And nobody knows and nobody cares. We've started over. That was high school. This is college. It's that State of liminality again. Some of you have experienced that when you went. Maybe you went to a school, and it was a new school, and you didn't know a lot of people, and you you pushed reset. For some of you, it was moving away from school, back here somewhere. You got nothing. There's no solid ground under you. Nobody knows who you are. Nobody knows what you're good at. Nobody knows how successful you have been. All they know is you can't find a job now, or things are falling apart. That's how it is for some of you very difficult to be in those situations and our tendency is to want to run back and grab on to that thing that's solid maybe some of you that went to college you did that you went home every weekend let me relive the glory years you didn't peak at 18 i hope there's more for you absolutely and the same thing is true in our life well let me just go home again Whatever that looks like. It's the the Israelites. Let's just go back to Egypt because it's better to be a slave because at least we know than to walk into this shaky, unknown future with the God who's just kind of showed up on the scene. And that's where some of you are. There's a tension for you. And the question is, what are you going to do? Are you going to try to go back and recapture the past glory? Are you going to try to go back and reestablish your identity as the smart guy or the funny girl or the great mom or the entrepreneur, the president of this or whatever, or are you going to allow God to pull those pieces out and establish your identity on who you are in him? Because ultimately that's the only solid foundation. All of this is sand. All of it's sand. And it's not because he hates you, it's because he loves you, that he will lead you into this funky state and he might blow up parts of your life if you're leaning too heavily on them to define who you are. It's easy when you're six, more difficult when you're eighteen, super painful when you're 38 to go through something like this. But we all have to. The older you get, the more invested you have in these things. The more kind of it just the public becomes your identity. Kind of how people see you becomes how you see yourself. It's subtle, it's creeping, but over time we that's who our identity is, how other people see us or what we're good at, or whatever that is, however we get stroked. That's who we see ourselves. God won't know. That's unstable ground. Shaky. And so what he will do, count on it, is he will lead you into one of these funky times. Some of you have just been through that. The economy has done it for some of you. Different times. Sometimes it's stuff with your kids, it's stuff with the relationship, with the job, whatever. He'll lead you into one of these times. He's going to shut your eyes so you can't see him, and he's going to start pulling out the pieces. That you've based your identity on. And it will hurt. And again, you, you can cry in the corner or you can just say, Can you finish up quickly? That would be my vote. Just ask him to finish. Because once they get it, what happens? Their eyes are opened. Once he's done, he's going to open your eyes again. But he's got to finish. You don't want to short circuit that process. I don't know if it's for some people, maybe it's a weekend. For some people, it's two years. Of going through it. Whatever. It doesn't mean you're better or worse. It's just, it is, it's how he works. If that's you, again, the, the thing I would encourage you, don't run. Don't run backwards for sure. Because there's a roadblock. you got to get through this. He's got to reestablish your basis for your identity. He has to reground you in who you are in him. And I think he does that repeatedly over the years. Because, again, it creeps. It's subtle that maybe I knew that when I was 21, and I've lost that now that I'm 35, and so God has to reestablish that in me. Maybe so. And so I've got to go back through another one of those funky states, another one of those Emmaus Road things, which will be painful, but ultimately it's for my good, and it's for your good. Hebrews 12, you can go through and read. A guy at 9 o'clock kind of had a word. He said, "If if you're in a state of despair, This is the word for you. Hebrews 12, 3. Consider Jesus so you won't grow weary and you won't lose heart. That's a great word for all of us. If you're in the middle of one of these times, consider Jesus. Talk about a funky state. How about going from being God to being a man? And all of the things that are part of that. So you won't lose heart and won't grow weary. Read that. Then read the next section. Verses 4 through about 12. It's all about discipline. God loves you, so he disciplines you. We talk about this all the time. God's desire for us to, is to be conformed into his image. And a lot of times that's painful. That's a molding and a shaping of our insides, which can be painful. But it's always for our good. And so if you're in that state, don't think that he's forsaken you. He never, Hebrews thirteen five, Never will he leave you. Never will he forsake you, desert you, abandon you, leave you in distress. It doesn't happen. He's with you, you just can't see Him. But He has purpose in it, and it's your good. So hang in there. Just hang in there. Ask Him to finish quickly. But make sure it's thorough. Let's pray. God, my prayer is simple. For anyone who's on that road, anyone who finds themselves kind of in that kind of funky state of being where they're confused and they're frustrated and they're upset and they're angry and they're mad and they want to give up, just all of that stuff all wrapped up into one, my prayer is simply that they would make a choice to trust you even when they don't understand you. And that would be that. God, if you've got people on the operating table, I pray they'd lay there until you're done. God, absolutely, we pray you'd finish quick. It doesn't have to drag on a second longer than necessary. But God, we want you to finish. And so, Lord, we, we sang it. Lord, have your way. That's our prayer. Have your way. If there's stuff in us that needs to get pulled out, pull it out. If there's stuff that we need added, we pray that you would add it. That our roots would grow deep. That we would not be those who fall away when times get tough. Lord, I pray that you would encourage anyone today who's going through one of these dark nights, anyone in this room, God, my prayer, just a a touch from you to encourage them, to let them know you're with them, you see them, they're not alone. And God, I pray for the faith, for the courage, for the discipline, the perseverance to keep walking even when we can't see the way. In Jesus' name. Uh, Brandon is going to close with a song. Y'all can just kind of hang where you are. You kind of sing this over us. My encouragement to you is just spend some time with the Lord. You can pray. Ask the Lord kind of what he's doing in your life. If you want prayer, you can come and kneel right over here and we'll have some guys come around you and pray for you. But just take some time uh, alone with the Lord and Brandon will cut us loose when we're done.